Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we've got Q1 update. However, we're going to have a financial instrument focus. So I'm just joined by the, or not just, I'm very lucky to be joined by the lovely Sandra Thompson. Welcome back, Sandra. Thank you, Ruth. And you hear I'm a bit croaky. I'll try and keep my distance, Sandra, not give you my cold. <laughs> Appreciated. Yeah, what's happening Q1? I've got sick. <laughs> but yeah, so well, there's lots of stuff going on in Q1, and I'll give you some other resources or the you, uh, the listeners some other resources to listen to as well. But we're going to focus a little bit on what's been going on in the financial instruments world. Obviously, 15 and IFRS 15 revenue and IFRS 9 financial instruments was actually uh, effective last year. But coming into Q1, it'd be good to reflect. Is there anything you want to sort of share with the listeners about IFRS 9? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Ruth. So I think the first thing to say is most of the issues were those we expected. So for the corporate, two biggest issues were probably debt modifications and the change there we've talked about before, and also the requirement to fair value all equity instruments, all equity investments, and of course impairment. Um, And I think for banks, it was mainly focused around impairment and getting the models up and running and then explaining the numbers. I've got one particular issue I'd like to flag and then I might reflect on some, some good things we saw. Oh, yeah, I like good things. Um, so the issue I want to flag is, is an impairment question. Um, many banks and corporates and indeed all kinds of entities have holdings of sovereign debt, government bonds. Yeah. Um, commonly they're measured at amortised cost or fair value OCI. So they do fall within the scope of IFRS 9's impairment requirements. And, and some questions were re- arose about, well, how do you do an impairment on a government debt now, clearly, governments are of many different types. Yeah. There are some extremely creditworthy governments around the world, and there are some perhaps less creditworthy governments around the world. So everything else, it depends. However, the particular issue that came out, if you're holding a government debt, perhaps from a less creditworthy government, is, well, if a government gets into financial difficulty, they can always just print money, can't they? They can always repay their debt because they'll just print more money, such that they have enough you know, money available in the system yeah. to repay debt. And therefore, we don't need to book any ECL, do we? There isn't any impairment zero. on government debt. It has to be zero. Um, you won't be surprised to learn the answer to that is no. Yeah. Um, that These are in the scope of IFRS 9's impairment requirements. You have to apply the impairment model in the same way as for any other financial asset in the scope of the impairment requirements. Um, so, And I think there's plenty of, of cases you can point to in history where governments couldn't print money indefinitely and they did default. So you do have to look at the probability of a default and then the loss that would result if that default happened. Now, for some kinds of governments, that may well give you a number that's immaterial, but for others it won't, and you just go through the normal model. You can't say because a government can print money forevermore, there can't be any impairment. (laughs) So we're not expecting any policies that say sovereign debt, we just ignore. Uh, (laughs) Need to go through the full model. And what were your good things? The good things, so I I thought it'd be good to particularly focus on disclosures, because some people really really put some effort into thinking, how can I explain the impacts of IFRS 9? I'm going to split this into two bits. I'm going to talk about the corporates who have different considerations to the bank. So if we talk first with the corporates, um, now for many corporates the impact was not material, so everything I say will be couched with that in mind. However, some corporates actually said it's not material and this is why, and indeed some regulators encouraged corporates to do that, and I think that can be a helpful disclosure, particularly if there are quite large amounts of financial assets on the balance sheet. Why isn't it material? Um, In terms of the actual disclosure of the impact. So starting with impairment, we saw some corporates talk about the use of a provisions matrix, quite a common tool yeah. for a corporate to use. 
how they'd done their provisions matrix, how it was different from what they did under IS39 and explaining the, the impact on transition. And then contract assets. So IFRS 15 contract assets were not under IS39's impairment and are in IFRS 9. So again, explaining that fact and how the model had been run for a contract asset and the pickup in the numbers. So two good things there. The other big area for corporates is hedge accounting. And there are quite there are quite a number of new disclosures for hedge accounting. And these apply even if you haven't adopted IFRS 9's hedge accounting requirements, listed on 39 hedge accounting, the disclosures still apply. Those disclosures include some requirements for a table that sets out things like the nominal value of derivatives used in hedges, um, the carrying values and the fair value, the, the gains and losses that have been booked and where they've gone, which line items in the income statement are affected. And we saw some disclosures, some sorry, some corporates really make a good job of that Great. and really group their hedges quite sensibly and use it to really explain much more their hedge accounting. So the, the analyst, the user of the financial statements can really see the impact the hedge accounting's had. The other disclosure that IFRS 7 requires is to look at the timing of the hedge. So what, what periods will this hedging instrument unwind over? And what's the average hedged price or rate? I have to say, I think corporates have struggled a bit more with that one. There's obviously a balance to be struck between doing something meaningful so not giving pages and pages because yeah. you've got hundreds of hedges, yeah. but also not over-aggregating so you lose the benefit of the disclosure. We've seen a couple of good instances, but probably some, some more evolution, I suspect, to go on there. So that's a corporate, so I'm sure you can say, yeah, what about the banks? Tell me about the banks. Um, I'm going to focus solely on impairments, and I've talked about disclosure by banks before, but the one thing I'll pick up on is, what about sensitivity analysis? What about the requirement to model different scenarios and, and giving some insight into that? And again, I think we saw some banks who've really put some thought and effort into this and did a very good job. So in terms of how might you give a, a reader the, the flavour for what sensitivities, how the number might change and what's the impact of doing multiple scenarios, um, we saw a number of banks who say, well, I modelled three scenarios, five scenarios, but they said what the impairment number would have been had one of those scenarios been the only scenario. So maybe you model an upside, a downside, and a base case, say what the impairment would have been had the downside been the only scenario you've looked at. And clearly that gives a flavour for how things might change in, in more constrained economic yeah. conditions. We also saw some banks giving sensitivities to the change in some of the inputs. So maybe if unemployment changed by X, the impairment number would shift by Y, or GDP, or house price indices. Now clearly there's limitations if you only do that for one variable, because it's very unusual for one of those to change on its own and some people did it for more than one but again it gives the flavour as to how, how the impairment number might move. We saw some quite good disclosures around staging so what would be the impact if a certain percentage of my stage one booked moved into stage two how would that um, pick up the impairment number or indeed if, if there was just a 25% increase across the board in all of the PDs how would that flow through into impairment. And then the final one I, I might pick out is how much of the ECL came from each of the multiple scenarios. So you had a total ECL of 100, so much came from the base case, so much came from the downside and, the out, and so much from the upside. Again, giving a flavour of how much impact layering on the multiple scenarios has had. The other one is, is overlay. So you run your main impairment model, there's some things that aren't captured well by the model, so you do a, an additional adjustment and overlay. Certainly in the UK, we've seen some loads of Brexit in common. It's a difficult yeah. thing to model. And some good disclosures about how that overlay had been constructed, 
how what how many scenarios have gone into it and, and really explaining the numbers so some very good ones there and i hope those will continue as brexit becomes hopefully a bit more certain as we move forwards so that's the kind of the what in terms of the how very good use of graphs um, and again it's the, the picture is worth a thousand words yeah. and, and i think particularly when we come to next year end and explaining how things have moved graphs can be a very powerful way of doing that so some very good examples to look to I love it that we've got such positive news for our listeners. So well done if you listened in and you thought, yeah, my IFRS 9 disclosures tick all the boxes that Sandra said. Uh, If you're listening and thinking they could be improved, maybe that's uh, something you can look at uh, going forward. So we've come into Q1 now. We talked about 15 and 9 were effective last year. Is there any new standards people should be aware of this year if they don't already know? Oh, well, of course, the big one is IFRS 16, the new leasing standard on the 1st of January 2019 so when you get to Q1 you will be adopting IFRS 16. I'm not going to say a lot on this we are about to put out an in-brief that will talk about um, interim disclosures and what how disclosures you might give around transition and the other one is not actually a new standard it's an, it's an IFRIC interpretation um, which is IFRIC 23 on uncertain tax positions so if you haven't picked that one up make sure you do. Brilliant. Okay, so two big things there to uh, be aware of. And like Sandra said, lots of stuff on both of those actually on Inform, but IFRS 16 specifically, loads of guidance coming out. We've also, one thing people should be aware of is always what's going on at the IFRIC. Uh, March IFRIC was a very packed agenda. We do actually have a separate podcast. That's why we're focusing just on FI today, although there were lots of FI stuff on uh, the IFRIC agenda as well. So Tony DeBell did another podcast a couple of weeks ago. That should be on pwc.com forward slash IFRS talks now. So don't forget to look at that as well. The second part of our podcast, what we're going to focus on is something that's coming rather than something that's already in there. And this is all around the replacement of LIBOR. So before we get into the sort of what's the financial reporting, could you just explain to listeners what does that actually mean? Yeah, explain to me, yeah, Sandra. Yeah, it's nice, <laughs> nice bit of jargon. What yeah. So after the financial crisis, um, there was concern about how some of the LIBOR rates have been constructed and maybe that some, in some cases the rates have been rigged. And as part of that, there's a number of regulators around most parts of the world looking at, at moving off LIBOR, very commonly quoted reference rate, into other kinds of reference (coughs) rates, sometimes called risk-free rates or RFRs. So, And that's going on a number of countries around the world and and different countries are moving at different speeds um, and they're moving to different rates. But it's a a very wholesale, it's kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime wholesale reform. Now, given LIBOR is actually pretty prevalent in financial reporting, I think this will impact pretty much everybody. Lots of companies have floating rate debt that is three-month LIBOR plus a spread. Um, and then even if you haven't got floating rate debt, lots of valuations that we do under IFRS have an IBOR component in there somewhere. And typically in the discount rate yeah. that's used to calculate, say, a, a non-financialized impairment number or a fair value. So this is going to be a pretty prevalent effect on companies. Yeah. So that sounds like you said it could be huge. What are some of the big financial reporting impacts that people should be aware of? I think this probably brings me on neatly to what the ISB is doing. So I think there will there's kind of two groups of impacts. So we sit here today, an eyeball reform hasn't yet happened, but everybody knows it's coming. Yeah. And there's the what do I need to worry about today before it happens? Uh, and the ISB and its project has done that as phase one, and that's really about hedge accounting. And then we will get to some point in the future where eyeball reform will actually happen. So yeah. the old eyeball rates will be replaced with the new rates, whatever they are. And then there's a bunch of accounting questions around, well, what do I do now? How do I update all the accounting impacts of of that? So that's broadly um, what we should be looking out for. 
Do you want me to, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me about yeah. hedging. So that yeah, sounds so like the thing we I'll, need to I'll think focus, about now. I'll focus on the, on the first of those yeah. because, um, as I said, the ISB has a project to look at eyeball reform and look at what reliefs we might give from the normal accounting rules to help people over the transition. And they split that into the same two phases. And at the moment, they're working on phase one. So what do we need to worry about before eyeball reform actually happens? And as I said, that really is hedge accounting. Now, the ISB's had a couple of discussions. We expect to see an exposure draft quite shortly. I'll come back to timing. And I'm going to talk through what we think that exposure draft is going to say. So the first question with hedge accounting is the highly probable requirements. So if you're hedging a forecast future transaction future cash flows, they need to be highly probable. The most common instance of this is a company that's issued floating rate debt, take three month eyeball plus a spread, and has hedged the eyeball cash flows and designated its hedge in terms of eyeball. So they swap that debt from floating to fixed with an interest rate swap and said so they're, they're, they're hedging the eyeball cash flows. Now, let's suppose it's a 20 year debt. If you look forward 20 years, is it highly probable <laughs> that there in will that be time. <laughs> eyeball cash flows for the yeah. next 20 years? Well, that's going to come a point in which, quite frankly, it's not. Yeah. Um, because we all know that eyeball reform is coming. And does that mean you can carry on with hedge accounting? And the ISB is aware of this. It's likely to propose some relief that says, for the purpose of the highly probable test, you assume today's cash flows remain unchanged. So if you've got LIBOR today, you can assume LIBOR for the full 20 years, which is very helpful yeah. relief. That's the first one. Um, the second one is around the need for an economic relationship if you're an IFRS 9. So that's an economic relationship between your, your debt and the, the derivative you're using to hedge. Or if you're an IFRS 39, um, then it's the need to demonstrate the hedge will be highly effective. And the difficulty here is that we don't quite know when eyeballs coming, how it will play out, will derivatives move before cash instruments, what will the new rates be, will, you, will everything move to a three-month rate, will it be overnight rates, may there be a mix of the two. So there's lots of uncertainty, yeah. which makes it quite hard to do that test. Um, so the relief we're expecting that the ISB will propose is to say that you can use the current contractual terms. So again, if you have an eyeball debt today, and an eyeball derivative, you just assume those two current eyeball rates remain unchanged. Again, very welcome relief. Um, the third one is around risk components, and I'm going to flip over now into a fair value hedge because this mm -hmm. is probably where this has the biggest impact. So many companies don't issue floating rate debt, they issue fixed rate debt, yeah. and they swap those into floating, so they'll have an interest rate swap that, that goes the other way. And it's quite common to designate that hedge as the, the change in fair value attributable to changes in eyeball. And that's, if you like, a, a separate risk component. You're hedging the eyeball risk component in that debt. Um, now, that's separately identifiable today, probably, and you're quite happy to do hedge accounting. When you look forwards, will it remain separately identifiable? Will I be able to see an eyeball component fixed rate debt in 5, 10, 15 years' time? Well, again, there's lots of uncertainty around that. So the relief we're expecting is the ISP will say, well, if your risk component was separately identifiable on day one, then you don't need to reassess that. You can carry on assuming it is separately identifiable. So therefore, my fair value hedge could continue. So you can see three very useful yeah. reliefs. Given the speed of eyeball reform in some territories, we probably need these sooner yeah, rather than later. Yeah, I was going to say. So tell me, so you mentioned there that the, they're going to come up with an exposure draft, draft soon. What's yeah. the plan or timing? Um, we think it's going to be probably beginning of May, end of April, beginning of May, probably beginning of May, a short comment period because they are aware of the yeah. need to get this in place. So probably a 45-day comment period. Okay. Um, and then with the aim to finalise it by year end um, with retrospective application but also early adoption permitted. 
So if you, although we've vision mandatory from the 1st of January 2020, you can adopt it early if you need it for 2019. Okay, that's Then good. you'll be able to adopt it. That's what's envisaged. Okay, that's good. So fast moving standard setting there. Yeah. Um, so that's the phase one of the project, like you said, is focused around hedging. And then phase two then comes into basically when it comes out. So that's yeah. a bit of watch and see. So it is a bit of watch and see. So we expect that to cover hedge accounting when you actually moved. Yeah. You know, Hedge documentation is going to change. All updated, and yeah. Start hedge accounting. <laughs> and also when you actually change the terms of a debt instrument, what's the accounting for that? Um, the ISB hasn't really started looking at phase two. It's very aware of the issues. Um, I think it would like a bit more certainty as to how this will actually yeah. play out, but it is aware that it needs to think about these issues. They've got a 45-day comment period to focus on. It's fast moving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. So um, great news that the ISB is doing something and uh, great for you to show with, uh, listeners what they should be thinking about. What should If they are listening and thinking, this is definitely going to impact me, what should they be doing now? A couple of things I'd say. So firstly, make sure you know your impact. So what contracts have you got? Make sure you've identified all the contracts that are going to be affected. The obvious places to look are derivatives and debt instruments, but also some leases have eyeball reference rate clauses in them. So make sure you look broadly and identify all the contracts you might need to. Um, the other thing is clearly look for the exposure draft. Yeah. Read it. See if you think it will help you. If you don't get in, if you don't think there's enough relief for what you need, then tell the ISB. They're very much in listening mode. It is a short comment period, so watch for it when it comes out and be ready to, to yeah. comment and feedback. And where can people go for help? Have we got some stuff out? Yeah, which we, we do. must have. So, um, PwC has a, an eyeball reform um, webpage. Yeah. You can find it easily on the pwc.com website. And that covers all aspects of eyeball reform, but including this. Um, and, and, uh, so, and there is a, we did an in depth, depth, I think, yeah. an in depth <laughs> towards it just at the back end of last year that you can easily get off. Um, ifrs.com slash ifrs brilliant pwc.com slash ifrs that's fine um yeah because i think like we've obviously focused on ifrs podcast so we focus on the financial reporting but obviously this is going to have a big old impact and hopefully maybe you'll come back sandra and tell us about a broader everything that people need to think about we might do a special eyeball reform um podcast that's very exciting impacts as well as some things we've not had time to cover today brilliant okay well thank you very much for joining us sandra fi themed q1 podcast uh, for all that extra information, like we said, we've lots of things there. So we've got the eyeball reform uh, page on pwc.com. We've got the March IFRIC podcast if you want to keep up to date with IFRIC, which is on the IFRS Talks page. And we've also got lots of guidance coming out around IFRS 16 as well on Inform. So thanks very much for listening. I've been your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Coopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.